before I get into talking about specifically the arguments and, and, and that I raised in the chapter that I'm um, submitting for this, uh, for this book, uh, I do need to, I think, frame, like provide a little bit of context of like what the approach is and what the methodology and what the purpose behind uh, the approach that I'm taking is. So, um, so, that's, so that's setting the context for you. Um, and it has to do very much with the fact that I am an engineer, started my career as an engineer, but have since been working in ethics and philosophy for you know, like the last 15 years. Um, and so what I end up doing in my work these days, as I've sort of turned my work to, uh, towards thinking about robotics and artificial intelligence, is just hanging around engineers, hanging around the people who are actually doing the technical work. I don't do that kind of work. It's not my background. Um, I don't have a background in computer science. Uh, but I'm very interested in the way that engineers do their work. Um, this kind of comes from uh, a background in science and technology studies. Uh, you know, I'm not a sociologist, but uh, kind of half of my PhD dissertation was focused on, uh, on STS and sociology. So it informs the methodology that I use for thinking about the work that I do today. And this is, you know, in hanging around engineers talking about things like the trolley problem uh, in autonomous vehicle context. So, you know, my, my dissertation uh, spoke a lot about the ethics of autonomous vehicles. I was playing around with trolley problems. Um, and it, you know, as I hung around with the engineers and tried to kind of, you know, give them all, I was invited to give talks to, 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 to you know, car companies and uh, researchers who are working on um, autonomous vehicles. I've been working with them for years as well. Uh, I started to recognize that, um, you know, the world was, I, I was starting to see these two different groups of people. Um, on the one hand, there were the engineers, the people that I was interested in engaging with. And on the other side, there were people like me, ethicists, talking about all these really interesting things uh, that we were bringing to bear from, from our background in philosophy and ethics. Uh, and there seemed to be this kind of divide up the middle. Do I have a laser pointer? Not really. So th there was a kind of wall between these two groups, right? So the engineers would be really interested to hear about what was going on in ethics and, and, uh, and philosophy. Um, you know, they're really interested in understanding, like, you know, how the how philosophers were thinking about the work that they were doing, um, but it was very difficult to uh, to get them motivated to actually change the way that they did their daily work from day to day. They didn't, and 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 I was trying to understand that. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand why that is. Why is it that when I was showing up to these uh, to these events, like for example, um, you know, after giving a talk about trolley problems and talking about how interesting how, how interesting it would be to kind of get ethics. Uh, helping to change the way that engineers do their work. I had a, a, a person who was representing one of the big car companies, I won't name the car company, come up to me and I said, hey, look, you know, you're, a, you're, you're associated with like this huge car company, you got a lot of money. Philosophers are pretty cheap. Like you could hire a philosopher to kind of hang around and, and uh, comment on what's going on and it's relatively inexpensive, I guarantee it. And uh, the comment that I got, and this was at an ethics in, art, in autonomous vehicles conference, um, the comment that he gave back to me was, well, you know, I could think of a lot better ways to waste my money. And I've been trying to figure out why, you know, I took that as a challenge. Like, why is that the response that I'm getting, even though they seem interested in the topics? Um, and this is, you know, this is kind of how I've constructed this world now and, 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 and defined the problem that I'm facing and that, you know, that we face generally when we do this interdisciplinary work. And most of the work that I do is interdisciplinary. 
Um, we have on the one side engineers who are saying, you know, this is how we do our work. These are the kind of problems that we, that we talk about in, in our particular work. This is how we frame those issues. Uh, these are the techniques that we've developed as engineers, you know, getting socialized in engineering schools. Same thing going on on the other side. Ethicists, philosophers, sociologists, historians, whoever it is. This is kind of how we frame problems, how we do our work. But it's very different, it's very difficult to bridge that gap between those uh, professional frames. So you've got professional frames on the one side, professional frames on the other side. Um, and, you know, engineers have very discipline specific ways of constructing their values and practices. Uh, those tend to map onto the kind of technologies that they're designing and the technological work they're doing. Same thing on the other side. Ethicists have these discipline specific ways of kind of constructing the world and understanding how they. Um, do interesting stuff in the world. So, the effect of this that I've seen, and this is all just context, the effect of this is that, um, you know, when you start digging a little bit deeper, uh, what I was hearing from engineers was generally, uh, not always the case, but generally, uh, it's like I understand what you're saying, but I don't understand how specifically to link it to the, the coding that I'm doing or the you know, the design process that I'm using to, to, to do this engineering work. It just doesn't fit into our, like, the, the daily work that we do. So I get that maybe, you know, there's, fair, there's like, issues of fairness, issues of bias. It's not clear to me exactly how to, to like, when I show up to work every day, what line of code to change or whatever. Like, there's, this, there, there's just this gap there. Uh, and, you know, what I was hearing from ethicists, and I, I get this all the time, it's like, well, and again, this is kind of a little bit of stereotyping, but the, the frustration seems to be like, well, I don't get it. Like, it just seems so obvious. There are these problems that everybody knows about. There's like fairness problems. There's like this kind of bias problem that we talk about. I don't understand why it's so difficult for you to incorporate it. You know, we look at Facebook, like why is it so difficult for you to, uh, to just like not do the things that you're doing that are destroying democracy? Like, it just seems so obviously obvious that you're destroying democracy, just fix it. Uh, but I take this to be a legitimate problem. So this is, this, is part of the, this is part of the challenge. So what I want to avoid, and I think what we all want to avoid in the, in the work is like just to walk away and say, well, you know, I've done my job. I, 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 it's interesting, but like that would be my, bookside, my bedside reading for the next month. I'm not going to incorporate it into the, daily, the kind of daily stuff that I do. And this is talking with like just like a lot of engineers out there. And here's how my work comes in and where, you know, what I'm doing is, 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 is working towards avoiding this. So, so the paper that I'm going to talk about today is very much in this vein, okay? There's this, there's this notion called interactional expertise um, that involves bringing engineers and, say, philosophers, ethicists, whoever, together in close contact, working side by side, and building a, a kind of a shared and common language uh, that allows them to move past things um, so that you get to this point. The goal is to get to this point where on both sides of the table you're saying, ah, okay, I see what you're talking about and I kind of understand how to incorporate that into my work now. What's involved in getting there? It's this kind of stuff. So it's building this notion of inter or this, this um, very practical interactional expertise is what they call it. Like you're not quite an expert in the other stuff, but you understand enough that you can have a very meaningful conversation with people who are experts in that stuff, uh, whatever that stuff tends to be, 
or, or happens to be. It's hard work. It involves building a common language, uh, sometimes a whole new language that you have to, uh, that, that you have to kind of like wrap around the discipline-specific languages. Um, it involves coming to a point where you understand which values and goals you share across the table uh, from, a from professional perspectives. Um, and importantly, it involves developing common tools, right? So uh, if you read engineering papers, they tend to, they, they tend to look very different than uh, philosophy papers. Um, you know, and so even those types of tools don't, they, they don't, they don't mesh very well, right? So you can't, you have to come up with these new kinds of tools, methodologies. This is especially important when you're dealing with uh, engineers. Engineers like processes, they like to have, uh, you know, checklists and, and um, you know, computer programs that they can use to, uh, to get things done. They don't always want to be thinking about first principles. Engineering is all about finding efficiency, repeatability, things like this, building that into your, uh, into your, into your work, your workflow, the way that you do your thing. So that's, that's the context. Uh, so I'm going to be talking about how today I'm trying to map some ethical concepts uh, into or onto engineering practice. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about today. That's why the title of my talk is Social Failure Modes, right? So engineers know a lot about failures and failure modes. They have a very particular way of talking about it. This chapter is very much a kind of building an analogous framework around social norms and, and just starting to deploy them with the language of social failure modes so that we can get engineers, <laughs> we can develop a set of tools and common language that helps to get the ethics project a little bit more familiar to the, the, the type of language that engineers use. Will it work? I don't know, but here's the setup. Okay, so technology fails physically, we know this. Uh, things break. This is just a bunch of pictures of the different ways that we've, as engineers, come to study, examine, develop theories, uh, mathematical understandings of these types of problems, characterize materials, um, you know, look at different failure modes, uh, so that we can, when we're designing things, when engineers design things, we can anticipate better how these things are going to fail. This is very complex, doesn't happen overnight. You don't look at, um, you know, you don't look at a mechanical failure like this and just intuit how, that's, how this happens. You see it happening all the time, maybe, so maybe you think, oh, maybe if I build it thicker, maybe that won't happen. Well, that's a very crude way of, of solving um, or anticipating failures. Uh, instead, what you do is you apply rigorous academic and scientific principles to um, building a, a very thorough knowledge that's wrapped around these ideas of failures. You start identifying different types of failures, um, so mechanical, electrical, whatever, but these are all the ways of talking about physical failures and physical systems. Engineers have become very good at doing this, and it's not easy, and it takes time. We still don't know a lot about most failures, Different types of failures are going to occur um, as we develop new types of materials, uh, new types of systems. And, but the point is that despite it being hard and, and, and very kind of mysterious when you first get into it, there's a way through this, right? It's applying rigorous kind of um, systematic work and inquiry to, this, to these different ways that things, physical systems fail. Okay? And we've done this, and we've had a lot of success in doing this in engineering, right? Uh, things, 
Things can be made much more efficiently. Uh, buildings are lighter, they're taller. Uh, we've developed new materials. So all this kind of stuff benefits from understanding how things break. But stuff breaks, everything breaks. We accept that, um, at least in terms of the physical sense. Okay, let me get very quickly now into the argument that I present in this paper. Uh, and it starts with this, the assertion that technologies also fail socially. We just don't, haven't, we haven't thought about things this way. We know that people fail socially, right? They do things that, that have consequences. And ethicists and philosophers have developed a way of talking about how technology has social issues or ethical issues attached to it. One of the two examples that I use in the paper is Google Glass. Um, for those of you who aren't, how many of you are familiar with Google Glass? Okay, for those of you who aren't familiar with Google Glass, this is a product that I've heard it's back, it's, it's back in, um, uh, not in production, but they're, they're, like, they're working on it again. Uh, I'm going to say this was maybe nine or ten years ago when they did the first iteration of Google Glass. So Google Glass was what you're looking at here, and what you see, it was like a sort of kind of a regular pair of glasses, except for this thing on the side, which just happened to be uh, like a, a, a high-definition camera with also uh, like a little screen that the user could see. So I've never used Google Glass, uh, but, but you know, in the Bay Area, a lot of people started using these things. Uh, a lot of Google employees started walking around with while they were testing the products, you know, going to restaurants in the Bay Area wearing their Google Glass, uh, going to sports games, um, you know, going to dinner parties with their friends. And very quickly, they, 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 um, they built a reputation amongst themselves. Not because of the individuals themselves, but because of other things that this technology uh, kind of came up, or issues that this technology raised, right? Norms that we have in society uh, that were implicated by this technology. So privacy, I mean, this is one, the obvious one. Uh, and there were a lot of papers and, and articles written about this. You know, you're sitting in a room with somebody that has, um, uh, that has Google Glass on, uh, and you're wondering, is this thing on right now? I mean, these were sort of web-connected um, devices. Is, is this person recording what I'm saying to them right now? Is that person over there, as they glance over, is it recording? Where is that stuff getting kept? Is it going to Google? Like, what is, what's going on? Standard kind of privacy concerns. And this is a social norm uh, that, because of the way that the, the glasses were designed, um, you know, it, the, they were, the glasses were bumping up against privacy concerns um, and creating a friction there, right? Like a kind of social friction. Uh, coolness, I don't know what other word to use for this, but there were a lot of articles that, uh, in fact, most of the articles all, you know, the authors always took the time to point out that it's like not only were these things privacy invasive, it seems, uh, but they were also like dorky. They had these, these words that they would use to describe them, right? Oh, they're nerdy, they're dorky. Um, what kind of a goofball wears uh, these kind of things? Like these people are these people are just geeks, like all the kind of stuff that you'd, ex that you'd expect to come out. And it had to do with this, like a kind of a combination of both, right? Socially awkward individuals doing something that's problematic. There's nothing cool about that. That was the idea. Um, there were also health concerns, but they were much, a much more minor thing, like the idea of always having a, like a little, a, a little, um, 
a screen and I think it used some lasers to use eye, to, to do eye tracking or something like that. There were some questions about the health. They were much more minor. Uh, but the term that came to be used to describe these people uh, was glass holes. That was, that was what they came to be known as. So these were the Google glass holes. Um, so that's one technology I want to talk, to, talk about, I, that I talk about in the paper. And what the argument that I'm making in this paper is that, you know, that there are these, there are these kind of social norms that are baked into technologies uh, in particular ways. So when you design a technology, you design it to be, um, to, to, uh, to implicate privacy in a very particular way. So it could be more privacy friendly or less privacy friendly. And the privacy, there's a lot of privacy literature on um, right now about like on privacy by design, which talks about um, you know different ways of changing the privacy profile of a technology by adopting different design strategies. So you know you might say that you want to make a privacy friendly uh, uh, camera, so you're going to blur out people like a, a like a. Um, a CCTV, so you're going to blur people's faces as they walk through the the gaze of the camera. So that would be like an example of a privacy-friendly uh, way of of designing privacy into uh, the system. But the way I talk about these things is that like privacy is designed into the system in a very particular way. In that case, coolness was designed into the system in a very particular way, and it and it just was not cool. Um, but you could, you know, you have other sunglasses, Ray-Bans, whatever, uh, that maybe are cool by virtue of the type of design that you use and, and the features that they have. Um, the other technology I use to talk about this, to, to kind of introduce this notion of, um, of how uh, technological artifacts can work or break, you know, so you know they can they can work or fail based on the the social normative profiles that are built into them, or designed into them. Is this this example here? I'll talk about it a little bit less, but it's a great example. It's a, a beautiful paper written uh, in the kind of STS literature talking about the Zimbabwean bush pump, uh, which is a very basic kind of technology. This is not AI. Oh, and I'll link to AI. Eventually, we'll get there. Um, but the, the Zimbabwe bush pump, uh, the way that the authors of this particular paper describe this pump is very interesting. So this pump uh, is said to have worked where other very similar pumps failed for a couple of very particular reasons. These were being used in uh, rural Zimbabwe, uh, where the cultural norms are quite different from those of the people who were designing the typical pump that was supposed to be used in a place like rural Zimbabwe, and differed in this way. Most pumps like this uh, that weren't this particular model would get shipped from wherever, somewhere in the West. Uh, they end up you know, landing in some spot. They open the book. Uh, the NGO goes in. They drill a hole where they figure there's water. They install the pump, and then they kind of hand it over to the locals. Uh, and what they found in doing, you know, over time was that those pumps were failing. People wouldn't, the locals wouldn't maintain them. Uh, the concrete skirts around the bottom would crack. Uh, things would become rusty. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't, they just would stop. Sometimes they would just never use them. They would install a pump in a village that needed water and nobody would use it. And so the explanation was always, well, we just have to teach these people to use this technology. Then along comes the Zimbabwean bush pump, which you know 
just on face value, is very similar to all those other pumps, but with a couple key differences. This is the way the authors of this paper describe the differences. I can only go by, their, um, by what they're saying. One of the things that was very important and emphasized again and again in the instruction manuals on how to use the Zimbabwean bush pump was that you had to engage local water diviners in finding the, where, the place to, 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 put the, to drill the borehole. Why? Well, not because they had some special technique for finding water. You know, the engineers who were coming from the NGOs knew how to drill and find water. It was because the local customs around finding water and using water required, uh, the, the, were attached to the social norm of um, trusting what the water diviner was saying. So water or not, they would drink from a well that was kind of blessed by the, the, the local water diviner. And this was repeated again and again in the instruction manuals. You have to engage the water diviners. You have to engage the water diviners. So this became part of the installation process, right? Was, was, so the, they built that social norm that was specific to that local custom into the technology by you know, requiring that it be installed that way. And there were a number of practices like this. One of them had to be, one of them was around drilling the borehole. So rather than bringing in you know, machinery and drilling the borehole, they designed this very special rig that the whole community would come out and turn the, turn the crank and they had a whole celebration around it and it turned into a festival and like they would, there would be dancing and food and all the usual stuff that goes into celebrating uh, the, uh, um, uh, the, um, the drilling of a new well. Uh, and that also helped to convince people and bring them online locally to use this pump, maintain it. They felt a sense of ownership of the pump in a way that they didn't. So this is another local custom that's built in. I want to say that those, that those, that, that, you know, designing specifically for those social norms is what helped to make the difference between a pump breaking failing and a pump working uh, in very much the same way that a mechanical failure would determine the difference between something working or something breaking. Okay, so I, you know, I make the arguments an artifact works or breaks in part because of the social dynamics that it creates. So this is how we get to this idea that technology can fail socially in a more specific and analogous way to physical systems, physical failures. Okay, so we have this notion of physical defects that everybody accepts. I just want to add the notion of a social defect in a technology. Like if you don't design properly for the social dynamics that are going on in the use context, you've built a sort of social defect into this thing. I would look at Facebook and say, well, it's like breaking democracy. There's something wrong with your technology. It's not the people that are using it. It's not the lack of regulation necessarily. There's something wrong here. And you just haven't learned how to account for that yet. Uh, and so we need to study both. One is no more important than the other from a descriptive perspective. If you want your technology to work, you have to take into account social defects as well. Uh, so then I talk in the paper, like I try to build this language, right? Build it a little bit more. So I want to get into this notion of social, fa social failure dynamics. So I, based on these examples, try to develop a couple, just as a starting point. So here's, here's one, technology can fail to establish the requisite social norms. So why did those other pumps fail where this one, the, the Zimbabwean bush pump succeed? Well, it seems that 
the bush pump, the way that they designed the instruction manuals and the, made it colorful, and there are a whole bunch of things that were listed in the, you know, kind of described in this paper, they managed to establish the social norms that were required, you know, the, the, that are required for maintaining a healthy drinking water and a, and a, and a functioning pump. Uh, and the other one, the other dynamic that I start talking about is, well, there's this, like, if you take the, the, the glass hole example, technology can transgress existing social norms. And we see that a lot more these days. So when, you know, when philosophers, ethicists, um, you know, um, sociologists talk about uh, what's wrong with, with today's AI and technology, a lot of times they phrase, they, what they're doing, you know, if you want to use this language, is they're phrasing the problem in terms of a social like a social failure norm, a norm transgression, some sort of norm transgression, right? Uh, so what's a social norm? I provide a brief definition in the paper. It's a behavior rule R that's followed by a sufficiently large set of individuals within a group and not by some other group. So um, I, I think you know, this, this, um, this links to Tom's paper a little bit. I have a lot of questions for Tom about about these rules, right? These social norms, and whether or not uh, we can actually govern or, or or build better technology. I have different. I think we have different ways of thinking about this problem. Um, and so here's the, here's the preliminary definition of a social failure uh, that I that I start using. So an artifact suffers a social failure when a social norm designed into it conflicts with an accepted social norm held by its users or in the social context of its use to the extent that the conflict diminishes or prevents the intended use of that artifact. And I link it to the intended use because I don't want to say that um, you should be designing for things that you can't anticipate, right? The goal here is to develop a, a way of anticipating things. You don't want unintended uses uh, to be blamed. You, you don't want to be blamed for necessarily unintended uses in a way that um, in a way that's you know unfair or un unwarranted, uh, but there's some you know there, I, I guess there's there's a lot of room for um, I've gotten a lot of pushback on that one, uh, in other in, when I've workshopped this paper a couple of times in other contexts, um, and there's a bit of pushback on that. Um, so then we can say well we've got at least two kinds of social failure modes that we can start studying now. Uh, this oh sorry. Uh, Oh yeah, quick, just a quick reason why we would want to justify like why, what's, what's the, you know, the engineer's like, why do I care about social pheromones? It's somebody else's problem. This is, these are, you're just smuggling in ethics here. Uh, give me some reason to, give me some reason to care about this. Okay, so this is the, these are the more like straightforward arguments. There are at least two. Uh, there are probably more. Uh, the one thing is if you think your system is gonna deliver some benefits and it breaks, you're not delivering those benefits. So you say your system's changing the world, uh, it's not going to if it's broken. And this is one way it can break, social norms, social failure modes. The other thing is, yeah, I mean, you can deliver direct harms to people by violating or by norm, through norms transgressions, right? And we see that today with, um, uh, you know, like these, uh, like the compass system or, um, you know, uh, any kind of like, uh, bias or discrimination that's built into um, AI systems. How am I for time? I got a couple minutes. Uh, so first pass at social failure modes. These are the two social failure modes, and this is based on those social failure, the, the dynamics that I talk about. So the one is the absence of supportive norms. So I just 
I'm labeling it here, absence of supportive norms. There's one, there's one mode that you need to be aware of. And the other one is the norms transgression, transgression mode. Okay, so I promised I'd link it to AI. I've done a little bit of that, sort of throwing in the Facebook examples and whatnot. But like I said, when you look at the list of, of uh, you know, topics that are, and it's growing, I mean, this is a subset of a much larger list that I've got on another slide. Um, these are all things that are attached to social norms. How do we, you know, we talk about these things in the abstract, uh, but we reify them when we go out and act according to social norms that, uh, that attach to these concepts, right? So we have a way of acting in society that, uh, that reifies these, uh, these concepts and defines like, you know, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Um, with AI, you know, the more autonomous these systems become, uh, the more we require delegating, delegating power and control to these systems that would have otherwise been up to individuals who understand those social norms, right? And, and who act on those social norms to more or less degree, depending on what role they're, they're acting in. Uh, but as we start delegating these tasks to AIs and, and uh, robots, they're going to have to perform socially. It's just a part of what they're doing. We may not recognize it that as, as that at first, say when we're looking at Facebook, we might not think of it as a system that's performing socially or behaving socially, uh, but we can start describing it that way if we, uh, I mean, if we, if we think about it um, in terms of social norms and the social norms that it's reinforcing or undermining. Uh, and of course, with social robots, it's just obvious that that's the case. Right, so the AI that's built into these things that will allow them to interact with humans uh, is very specifically going to uh, perform in certain ways uh, and to, a, to, to much more of an extent, um, these social norms are being smuggled in again. I don't know that they're being talked about as social norms so much, uh, but certainly they're being smuggled in. We see examples like this where we're talking about having you know, little social robots acting as um, uh, caretakers, caregivers, but also therapists in medical contexts, right? Um, especially with children, because a lot of the studies show that interactions with children uh, in, a, in a, a psychological therapy can actually yield benefits that are greater than that with adults. So kids will engage with robots and, and, and work through problems with robots in ways often that they won't with adults because the adults are intimidating or the adults were the source of harm in the first place in their world and it takes a lot more work to, to get them to think. There's some studies out on this, so. Uh, and then we see something like Google Duplex. For those of you who are not aware of what Google Duplex is, um, so this is, I, I'm sure this is Google CEO. Uh, this was the, the launch of Google Duplex. Uh, and I, I was in a, the timing was perfect. I was at a, a small workshop we were holding at Stanford um, on ethicists in tech companies. And everybody was there but Google. I say everybody, Facebook was there, Microsoft was there, like a bunch of the companies were there. Uh, and as we were having this day-long discussion, the news broke that Google had just released Duplex. And Duplex, for those of you who don't know, was built into their Google Home, like their own, their version of Siri or Alexa. Um, where Duplex would allow you to ask your Google Home Assistant to, to make a, an appointment for you. It would then make a phone call, 
and using very natural language, complete with, um, uh, yeah, I'm just calling on behalf of uh, John to make a hair appointment for tomorrow. Uh, do you have any time at 11? Uh, and then, you know, the person on the other end thinks it's a person, and they, and they go through this routine. And they, 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 uh, they demoed this live, uh, you know, for the world to see. Uh, and the immediate reaction was like, I can't believe Google is going to deceive people with this is dangerous technology. This is a problem. So especially in the you know in the room that I was sitting in, people were just shaking their heads. Um, you know, partly just because it's it's amazing what's happening today, and it, it you, you almost can't keep on top of it. Um, but it raises clear social like questions of social issues, right? Like what to what ends are you going to deploy Google Duplex? It's like. So I would like to say that you know robots and AI can fail socially. They are failing socially. They can fail socially, uh, and because of the extent to which we're going to have to embed these norms for these kind of, to have these smooth social interactions, um, you know they can fail badly as well. Uh, here's another example of for those of you who may have come across this Predictum, this babysitter app that was. Uh, using natural language processing to, to uh, provide risk profiles based on Twitter feeds, Facebook profiles, Instagram profiles of potential babysitters for your children. So you sign up for this program uh, and they, they kind of, you know, they scrub all of the, the social media platforms that that 16-year-old is on. Uh, and then they deliver a risk profile based on, a, you know, different indicators from this natural language. This is a big part of my research right now. Just trying to understand what's going on here. But they, they provide a risk profile. Uh, this person like has, you know, they found like aggressive behavior, evidence of drug use, like all these different indicators that they use these natural language processors to, um, to flag. So again, raising a lot of issues that are all attached to these social norms. Social norms around hiring babysitters now are being undermined and, and, and impacted by uh, these types of technologies. So they can fail socially. Uh, so the remedy here in my, like, you know, what I've been talking about here is just building this common language, building this new set of tools, like this, these, these concepts around uh, social failure modes um, and doing the social failure mode analysis to, uh, to understand and anticipate when you're designing. So I'm focused on engineers here. Um, to understand, like, when are you bumping up against these social norms? In what different ways can social norms and, the, the, you know, as a reality in the social world impact your technology, and so on and so forth. And this is work that's going on. I have to plug the University of Ottawa. So this is work that's going on at, the, at U of O right now. We've got various labs that are, uh, including my lab, Cradle, um, that are working on these techniques and, and, and thinking about these concepts and, and, and developing them out. I'll take some questions. Yeah. Thank you.